I'm surprised you can keep your mouth shut. Boys, you're good. You are mind-blowingly duplicitous. How do you do it? You just tear things up? You're a triple imposter. I've never seen anything like you. Is there anything real about you? Do you even speak Latin? Falecius sunt rerum speciis. Which means... Wait, what? What'd you just say? It means binge mode contains adult content. And spoilers. You're good. And now, binge mode Marvel. You come from a family of thieves and butchers. And now, like all guilty men, you try to rewrite your own history. And you forget all the lives the Stark family has destroyed. Speaking of thieves, where did you get this design? My father, Anton Anko. Well, I never heard of him. My father is the reason you're alive. The reason I'm alive is because you had a shot, you took it, you missed. Did I? If you can make God bleed, then people will cease to believe in him. And they will be blood in the water. And the sharks will come. The truth, all I have to do is sit here and watch as the world will consume you. Binge Mode Marvel, proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com. Oh, what a great website. The best. Joining me today, now that he's finished watching Super Nanny with Agent Coulson, your favorite new element inventor, Jason Concepcion. Mal, I told you I don't want to join your super secret boy band. But I am thrilled to be here with you for Binge Mode Marvel, where we will be exploring the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Infinity Saga and the comic book lore that inspired it. As phase four of the MCU nears, please make the journey to the Circuit de Monaco with us by following this podcast on Spotify or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Give us the five star ratings right now, or we'll invite Whiplash to your next race and poison you with palladium. If you're looking to catch up on our prior seasons or listen to them again, you can find our entire archive. Binge Mode Game of Thrones, Binge Mode Harry Potter, Binge Mode Star Wars, and Binge Mode Weekly for free exclusively on Spotify. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, which is an excellent place to peruse the guest list for Tony's birthday bash. And don't forget to head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch. Fits comfortably under War Machine's armor. Mm, boy, does it. Last time on Binge Mode Marvel, we explored the, in our minds, underrated second it's installment underrated. of the MCU, The Incredible Hulk. And today, we're diving deep. Deep! Into the third film of Phase 1 and the second film of Tony's trilogy. Iron Man 2. As always, here on Binge Mode, just a little spoiler warning for you. We will be going deep on details from this film, all three phases of the MCU to date, and of course, the wider Marvel canon. We love a wide canon. 
So exit the donut because it's time to head to the Stark Expo right after this. Mel, I want my bird. (laughs) And I want my plot points. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in Iron Man 2 by opening up the Bifrost and accessing the knowledge of the Light Realms. Amazing. We open in Russia six months before the events of the rest of the film. Ivan Venko's father, Anton, just passed away. Steve, give us some. I don't feel so good. I don't feel so good. I don't feel so good. (gasps) Anton doesn't want to (laughs) go. The elder Venko helped create the arc reactor with Howard Stark, but Howie cut Anton out of the picture and the elder Venko dies penniless and unknown. Ivan, set on revenge, begins building a suit of armor based on the original arc design. The Whiplash Armor, Mark One. In the present, we join Tony Stark in his Iron Man armor high above the air, above the Stark Expo in Queens, New York. Descending through bursts of fireworks, he lands on stage, and flanked by dancers, he soaks up the adulation of the crowd. Stark makes a swaggering speech in which he takes credit for just a little thing I like to call world peace. <laughs> uh, Tony. Good old Tony. Subtle, always. You know, humble. Yes, as always. Yeah. When I think of Tony, I think of the word humble first. <laughs> but behind the braggadocious exterior, Tony is under enormous pressure. His power source, the Palladium, is poisoning his blood. Tough stuff for our guy, Tony Stark. A very rough. Iron Man is Tony, but Iron Man is also killing Tony. And he's just been called to testify before the Senate Armed Services Committee to answer for the advanced weaponry in his possession. That's not exactly high on the how do I want to spend my final days wish list. Not good. The committee is concerned that America's enemies are working to create their own Iron Man suits inspired by Tony's exploits. At the hearing, Senator Stern, who, and we can't say this enough, Mm. we will eventually learn is a Hydra sleeper agent, takes the opportunity in front of the cameras to publicly pressure Tony to hand over his suit and technology. What a diva. Tony, meanwhile, is convinced that he is not long for this world. And so congratulations to the Mm. new CEO, Pepper Potts. Shouts to Pepper. Proud of you, girl. Long time coming. Though I do have to say, I, uh, I'm i with Tony on the pepper if you have a cold, like, yes, please. don't breathe on me. Tony really channeling quarantine energy ahead of his time. A notary arrives to make the handover official. It's heaviest air quotes possible. Right. Natalie Rushman. <laughs> <laughs> A.K.A., of course, Natasha Romanoff. A.K.A. Black Widow, an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and (laughs) the subject of some... uh, Very tough. (laughs) Very tough. What's age the worst moments? 
Shouts to Pepper for at least saying, who's that? That is a very expensive sexual harassment lawsuit waiting to happen. Yes. Tony Stark. Also, I got to say, Miss Rushman, when you leap up and scissor Happy Hogan's neck between your thighs and then spin him to the ground, you're kind of blowing your cover here. So let's try not to do that in the sparring session with Happy Hogan. In her defense. Yeah. He was like, uh, you know. Yeah, you had to. What, what'd you, where'd you learn to train? Like some, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, like Instagram yoga account that you follow? Eh? Yeah, stay tuned so I can ogle you as you ch- change in the backseat of my car. She didn't even have to go take him to the ground, though. I mean, she could have two-pieced him standing straight up. It was too easy and too tempting. She couldn't resist. Yeah. She couldn't resist. <laughs> I support her. <laughs> She's there, tackling Happy, asking for Tony's impression, et cetera, because, as we will learn, she has been tasked by Nick Fury to infiltrate Stark and keep an eye on the rapidly declining, increasingly difficult to manage Tony Stark. Tony and the gang, including Natasha, who's all of a sudden been promoted to assistant to the leadership group, head to Monaco for the historic Grand Prix where Stark's sponsored team is competing. After a tense run-in with rival CEO Justin Hammer and Vanity Fair's Christine Everhart. Mm, familiar with her work. It features some unbelievable shade from Pepper. <laughs> Just, <laughs> oh my God. Ridiculous stuff. Tony impulsively decides that, you know what? I'm going to drive in the race. I, is that how it works? Does it work like that? Can you just decide that you're going to drive? I don't know, but Tony did. That poor driver. That poor. <laughs> imagine how hard the driver had worked to prepare for that race. Highlight of his goddamn life. And then Tony Stark fucking walks up and is like, get out of the car. He's probably the one who was like, oh, Mr. Whiplash, do you need a, an on-ramp? Are you looking for a way in? Here you go. Great transition as Tony rounds a turn. A gentleman in mechanic overalls walks onto the track. Mm. It is Ivan Vanko. And he slices Tony's car in two with his whiplash weaponry. Happy Hogan and Pepper Potts arrive on the scene, saving Tony's bacon, honestly, and delivering his briefcase armor. Tony suits up, defeats Vanko, and Ivan is taken into custody by French police. Later, Justin Hammer breaks Vanko out and... Banco, upon payment of a cockatoo, goes to work for Hammer. If you had just been busted out of prison, yeah, how would you respond to Sam and Carpaccio as the first offering? It's not, I want something cooked. Mm-hmm. How about a steak? Mm-hmm. Sam and Carpaccio mm-hmm. is a little, it's a little top shelf for me coming. But I guess, you know, salmon, very big in Russia. I don't know. Maybe he liked it. I I want something more. Listen, like Tony Stark, get me an American hamburger. I mean, I guess the last hot food item that Vanko received was a plate of mashed potatoes (laughs) that was actually a encased C4 explosive. So (laughs) maybe the light refreshing salmon paired well with the vodka after all. Tough stuff for my body double. (laughs) Man, that moment when you look down and you realize you've got the same number on your jumper as the other guy. (laughs) Not great. Tony's self-medicating accelerates. Rhodey tries to warn him that the government is out of patience, poised to come seize his armor. At his birthday party, Tony drunkenly mugs for the attendees, wearing the Iron Man suit. He's shooting 
objects out of the air with his repulsor being, you know, I'll 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 see your martini glass and I'll raise <laughs> yeah. you a whole watermelon. Pissing in the suit in front of everyone, channeling it. Maybe he'd recently read Dune, you know, touting the virtues of the uh, filtration system. You could drink that water, Pepper. Absolutely. But that's not how he should be behaving. That's the point. And so Rhodey has no choice. Knows he has to act, puts on his pal's old suit of armor and challenges the birthday boy to a party throwdown. Absolutely annihilating. (laughs) That's fucked up. Annihilating Tony's Malibu mansion, which basically the concrete foundation of which remains just intact enough to then be completely destroyed in the third Iron Man film. That's right. Keeping our contractors employed in California. Rhodey takes the Mark II to the military for study. Later, Justin Hammer arrives to add a suite of weaponry to the armor. Nick Fury confronts the spiraling Tony Stark at a donut shop, and there Natasha reveals her true identity and mission. Nick gives Tony a come-to-Jesus speech and a shot of lithium dioxide. The latter helps blunt the effects of the palladium poisoning. I'm going to credit the donuts. Personally, you can't convince me that the offerings from Randy's Donuts are not primarily responsible for abating Tony's condition. (laughs) Fresh out of the oven, Fury reveals to Tony that Howard Stark was one of the founders of S.H.I.E.L.D. He gives Tony a case full of Howard's work, cuts communication, phone privileges revoked out of Tony's mansion so that he can focus on his homework. And so Tony does. He pours over the contents of the case. Wearing legitimate bell bottoms. (laughs) I mean, the pants that Tony is wearing when he sets out to see Pepper. (laughs) Well, hold on. They cut his communications, but like he can drive, he can leave. What are the security protocols here, Nick? I don't understand them. He does. He's got the one phone. Tony Stark makes phones. I think here's my, my my thing there is that I think that probably Tony could have gotten in touch with anyone he wanted to if he yeah, really had tried. Absolutely at any time. You know, it was more like a gentleman's agreement be on your right. best behavior. No, you cannot go to the coffee bean despite right. asking Agent Coulson nicely until you watch your dad's videos and thumb through his notebook and find some inspiration and put on your finest pair of dancing bell bottoms and go to visit Pepper <laughs> and bring her strawberries even though she's allergic. That's the sequence of events in essence. Incredible stuff from him. Oh, Tony. I love when he's like, this is progress. You know, I knew that there was some association between you and strawberries. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I nearly closed your windpipe, but it shows you that I care. Pepper, not interested in that explanation and generally not interested in Tony's version of an apology here. But the trip is not a complete waste because he does find a scale model that happens to come apart and fold neatly into his tiny Audi convertible. (laughs) (laughs) oh my god did he put some pim particles onto the expo board there (laughs) and this offers a key revelation howard stark encoded the formula to the new element that he would need tony to finish discovering or rediscovering as tony phrases it here in the layout of the expo and i have great news for you jason in the decades that passed nobody touched anything at the expo Nothing about the layout, nothing about the structure. I'm I'm excited to, to really dig into this because on the rewatch, the first time I watched this movie in the theater, every other time I've rewatched this movie, this part 
it just absolutely flummoxes me. So it's tough. Howard yeah. Stark had discovered through theoretical physics a new element, but he lacked the technology to create it. Then instead of writing it down and putting it in a safe and then in Tony's in his will saying, Tony, upon, you know, such and such date, open this box and there's going to be stuff inside there for you. He then encodes it into the layout of the Stark Expo, as you said, which thank God no one has ever changed. <laughs> and also it's the element that Stark needs to fix his palladium poison problem. What? <laughs> Jason, we call it deus ex element. And, yeah. you know, the good thing is also that while embedding those clues for a future that was bound to unfold exactly as it did, Howard labeled the map the key to the future is here. So if anybody had been wondering if Howard Stark had embedded clues anywhere at any point, they would know exactly where to look. Stay tuned, folks, for some Tesseract and Project Pegasus talk later. Yes. A lot, lot more coming on <laughs> New Element and everything wrapped up in that sequence. Vanko, meanwhile, has changed Hammer's armor project from piloted craft to drones, while also secretly creating a new and more powerful suit of whiplash armor, the Whiplash Mark II. He plans an attack at the Stark Expo, where Pepper and Natasha look on as Hammer unveils his line of armored drones. Hammer's Capper, the reveal of James Rhodey Rhodes in the War Machine armor. Hammer. This fucking guy. Justin Hammer. Man. What a jack. <laughs> Although oh, the God. pitch for the ex-wife is unbelievable. A remarkable bit of speechifying. It's un it's unreal scene chewing. Yeah. This oh thing will write Ulysses. <laughs> then it'll and, read, and it, then to read it to you. <laughs> <laughs> it'll make it look like Ulysses was written in crayon. Yeah. Oh, Sam Rockwell, great stuff. Tony arrives at the expo and he warns Rhodey that Hammer is working with Vanko. He solved it. And to be fair, it wasn't all that difficult to solve because Vanko called him and ultimately wants Tony to find him. That's kind of the point. Just then, though, Vanko executes his long con. This was the plan all along. Hacks in to take control of Hammer's drones and also... Not ideal here for our guy, Rhodey, the updated armor on, Rhodey. that Rhodey is so excited about and is proudly wearing for all to see. You have to update your antiviral software and your drivers. <laughs> and clearly Rhodey is not doing it. I mean, listen, we're talking about a guy who uses his own superhero alias as his username and password in Iron Man 3. So what do you expect? Very lax OPSEC from fucking War Machine out here. <laughs> War Machine rocks! Battle ensues. There are a lot of people at the expo. Yeah. Nobody cares. Tony's like, eh, let's get it away from here once. But then as soon as he realizes there are bombs everywhere, he's just like, Pepper! <laughs> Boy. Natasha breaks into Hammer's facility. Cuts through the hemorrhoid army with ease and reboots ease. <laughs> with ease <laughs> reboots war machine just in time tony and rhodes then face down hammer's remaining drones and finally defeat vanko together iron man may not have a sidekick jason but it sure looks like he has a partner i love it later in fury's office the director shows stark natasha's field report 
and the two discuss the Avengers initiative. Bottom line of Natasha's report, Stark is too unstable to be part of the Avengers team. He can be a consultant, however, if he wants. Senator Stern then presents Rhodey and Stark with medals for defeating Hammer and Vanko. Mm, it's amazing how painful a little prick can be. Yeah. And then in the stinger, a lot of talk about the land of enchantment throughout the film. Well, Agent Coulson arrives in New Mexico, a top secret site where Jason is that Mjolnir's music. <laughs> Thor's hammer has crashed to earth. That's the singer I think that got me like the most jazzed for, oh, they know how to do this. Like they know how to set up the next one. The MCU is in full effect. Great stuff. I just, I, I just remember being, well, there are two moments. Of also, course. they shift from the Audi product placement to the Acura product placement within the same film. When Coulson <laughs> picks up the shield, I was just like, oh my God. That's a great, you know, that's, in the theater, I was just like, oh my God. I love that because Favreau's really good at fucking with audience expectations and calling yeah. back like the in-joke within the in-joke, the layer upon the layer, because they didn't know the fans were going to respond the way they did to spotting Cap's shield in the first film. So here, like make the subtext actual text. It's such a great And then moment. of course, the stinger with the hammer was just like, oh my God, they're really going to do this. I can't believe it. We're the doing this. Comics in yeah. Howard's case. There's so many little things. It's great. Yeah. Jason. Yes. I'm limited by the technology of my time. But one day <laughs> you'll figure this out. And when you do, your podcast will change the world. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's power up the arc reactor and the story. The defining theme of this episode is legacy. Let's talk for just like a hot second about the film's development. So released for the summer movie season of 2010, May 7th, 2010, to be exact. This is the third film in the MCU phase one. And really the first film at which you started to see that terminology really start to be used. Phase one. No MCU films in 2009. The last year without an MCU film until this very cursed year of ours, the year of our Lord 2020 right now. Remember, Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk were basically back to back in 2008. And so this was the first sequel play, really. You know, aside from the opening sequence of this film, it takes place six months after the events of Iron Man. And, and fascinating to consider the plot overlaps with the, the key elements of the Incredible Hulk and Thor. All of these movies in the canon timeline take place around the same time. All of this is part of the early MCU roadmap. Numerous points along the way, we've talked about this in, in the past on Binge Mode Weekly, a lot of key tests. Iron Man initially and Hulk right on its heels. What would the overall appetite for this be? And if the people who were fans of the stories were making the stories, could it work? When you get down a little further into phase one to the Avengers, what would the appetite for the team up be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on and on the list goes. And we will talk about many of those inflection points and fulcrums as we discuss all of these movies. But Iron Man 2 was the salvo for franchising, for franchising yes. characters, for franchising the MCU at large. How deep could you go with one figure? How wide could you make this universe? And how could you start to connect these threads together? Production began, in essence, right after Iron Man 1, 
hit theaters and became a smash hit. Maybe the hottest screenwriter in MCU history, Justin Theroux, wrote the script, which is like truly wild to consider. This is ast- astonishing to recall. I guess it's like one of those things where it's like, here's the guy that's writing our script. Wait, you're too good looking to. Do you want to be just, Iron Man? Do you, yeah. Do you <laughs> want to be like an actor or something? Gendy Tartakovsky worked on the storyboards. Love this. Clone Wars. Just unbelievable talent behind the scenes. John Favreau returned to direct. Don Cheadle took over for Terrence Howard. Look, it's me. I'm here. Deal with it. Let's move on. <laughs> Piece of dialogue that seems uh, as if it's aimed at all of our pop culture knowledge. And then Scarlett Johansson and a really unfortunate wig joined the team. How do you feel? You don't you you're fine with this wig. I'm very I am very pro the outfit, pro the the just crackling chemistry between Scarlett Johansson and Robert Downey Jr. I thought my television was going to explode, Jason, on a rewatch. I love this scene. When Tony goes with the bell bottoms to see Pepper and then uh, Natasha comes in. He's like, I thought you I thought you didn't like her. And they have that like little mini. Uh, it's just me. You don't care for yeah, right? <laughs> they have that it's little like mini argument movie. It's so good. <laughs> no, it's just me. You don't care for. Yeah, I, I love. I mean, right right at the very beginning in the intro when she goes into the ring and they're just looking at each other and he's just like, what? <laughs> I don't know. It's just. <laughs> yeah, they're so charming. Great stuff. <laughs> The question was, though, could the movie recapture the magic? While 312.4 million domestic, 311.5 million internationally, 623.9 million globally, reception pretty even among critics and fans. If you're looking at Rotten Tomatoes, 72% among critics, 71% among fans. And the consensus was generally, this is a lot of fun, but it's not quite as good as the first one. So what, what's your take, Jason? Like channel the, the moment when you first saw this and then Ooh. obviously if that has altered over time, let us know. But how do you think this one stacks up? I like, I liked the, uh, the ingredients. You know what I mean? Like there's a little demon in a bottle in here. Uh, I love the Justin Hammer pickup. The addition of Rhodes in armor is great. I love the briefcase armor bit. That's just, you know, for a, comics nerd that's like oh man feige and the team know what they're doing at the same time you know as i mentioned at the top it feels like there's bits in here that just don't really line up the howard stark revelation feels like one of those studio notes that uh that justin throw got where it's like i i don't really feel like tony's emotional stakes are there other than saving his own life because he's being poisoned by palladium. It feels like that discovery needs to be, it needs more emotional heft or something. And so they back channel this thing. It just felt like that part of it just, it always confuses me. It just doesn't line up for me. What about you? Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I think that it's, I I feel similarly. I like the movie. I like all MCU movies. Yeah. It's definitely lower on the power rankings than most of the other MCU movies. I think that's a consensus. Yeah. And I think that some of what you just observed, like that tonal variance and maybe like lack of harmony is a little bit a product of just when it came into into existence, when it came to be, you know. And one of the things that we'll talk about more when we get to Iron Man 3, and then we're going to talk about a lot of Tony throughout the whole Benjamin Marvel run, is, you know, the MCU was, it was stacked so heavily 
yeah. in an Iron Man capacity up front. So if Iron Man 2 or even Iron Man 3 come much later in the run, there's a lot more clarity about what works in the MCU, what do people want, and when can you lean fully in one direction? Think of something like Thor Ragnarok and the unapologetic sense of self that that movie has. And that just makes it hum, right? So Iron Man 2 is, in some ways, again, your mileage may vary, I think, watching it in 2020 on like how well you think some of the humor holds up and whether it feels appropriate, but it's a fun and funny movie. Yeah. It's also trying to be a thrilling action movie and it's trying to be very serious. Yeah. And all three of those are standalone tones. Now, I think the first Iron Man film managed to incorporate all of them together pretty harmoniously. And so trying to recapture that, especially when you have the same director and a lot of the same people steering the ship is a very logical choice. I wonder if they had gone a little more fully into any one of those directions, if that would have made a little bit of a difference. But who are we to rewrite any of the history of the MCU? Because let's say it had been, okay, and, and an interesting thing, if you return to press clippings from around the time of the film's release, there's like a lot of dissonance in the actual interviews and in the way people talked about the movies about the Demon in a Bottle influence, whether yes. that was what they were trying to do, whether it wasn't, how much they wanted to lean into that, how much they wanted to say, no, we're doing our own thing. And I think that some of that extends to other arms of the movie, like even Whiplash and Hammer. Like, this Whiplash is not comic book whiplash. You know, not Ivan Benko's whiplash is its own thing. It's the, the cinematic version of this character that was then introduced into the comic canon after the fact. This Justin Hammer, I think, is a, a riot. Like, I think Sam Rockwell's performance as Hammer is really one of the more underrated I agree. bits of hilarity he's in the great. MCU. It's not a threatening villain, but that's the point. He's a, he's a punchline. He's a joke. He's, a, he's just an absolute slime ball. Right. And again, that like almost dissonance of say of wanting to, I think, at once connect deeply to the comic roots and to that Marvel lore and history, acknowledge it, embrace it, give comic book fans and fans of these kinds of stories a movie that they would love. And then also to say, we're going to put our own spin on it. And some yeah. of that just is a matter of reps before you can do it perfectly. So the movie's fun. But, you know, I think at some point we'll actually probably do our full power rankings I'm not like ready right now to commit to exactly where this checks in for me, but it's probably like somewhere around like 19 or 20. I'm going to go, uh, you know, off the top of my head, I'm going to say I have this in the bottom three. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty easily. And, and again, there are fun moments in this movie. I think most of the action is is good, but just a little bit of a hodgepodge that doesn't doesn't quite gel. But still a lot to like. Still plenty of Robert yeah. Downey Jr. Still an interesting story. This is not like Attack of the Clones. Plenty to like. So let's let's dive in. Let's talk about the actual movie. The opening minutes of Iron Man 2 ask us to consider legacy in its many forms. It's varied forms. There's the legacy that Tony created for himself when he issued the instantly infamous words at the end of the first film, I am Iron Man. A legacy that will spawn dozens of suits of armor, save millions of lives, and eventually, of course cost him his own. Those were all choices that Tony made. And sometimes those choices stemmed from bravado or hubris, sometimes from rage or rashness, sometimes from selflessness and protective instincts. Always, though, whether misguided or wise, those choices stemmed from a desire to build a better world, or at least Tony's version of a better world. And as we discussed at length in our Iron Man podcast, Tony Stark is a futurist. His life centers around innovation and invention. You know, his North Star is the belief that 
he can solve a problem. He can figure out a solution. He can use his brilliance and his ingenuity and his technology to forge a new, hopefully better path. Jason's favorite military leader, Stannis Baratheon, once said, (laughs) (laughs) we march to victory or we march to defeat. Oh, we march to defeat. (laughs) But we go forward, only forward. And while Tony and Stannis could not be less similar when it comes to disposition or good humor and cheer. <laughs> Didn't work out for Stanny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Stanny Jr., though. <laughs> <laughs> little Stanny Jr. In this way, Tony has a little bit of the stag in him. It is not always clear where his conviction ends and his desperation begins. Mm-hmm. But whatever the case may be, it leads him in one direction. Iron Man 2, though, asks us to remember that another Thrones character really provides the key to understanding the burden that Tony inherited and the way that he simultaneously struggled to shoulder it and, in his better moments, turned it into a source of illumination. The Lion, Tywin Lannister. Do you know what legacy means? Tywin wants to ask him. Still, one of our favorite scenes. Shouts to season two and those mm-hmm. Arya impersonating a cupbearer at Harrenhal moments. Ah, the glory days. It's what you pass down to your children, he said, and your children's children. It's what remains of you when you're gone. Howard Stark, Tony's father. For as much as Tony looks forward, he is not actually the machine or the armor that he wears. He's a human being. And people are influenced by their past. Not defined by the past, not beholden to it, but connected to it in ways both clear and unforeseen. That goes for more than just Tony, by the way. The ghosts of the past don't exist in isolation. Enter Ivan Vanko, another brilliant man, physicist, capable of introducing life-altering technology into our modern world, and another man living in the shadow of his father. But unlike Tony, who misunderstands his father's intentions, Ivan is driven by the knowledge that he's one of the few who know the truth about who his father is and what he really accomplished, the breakthroughs he made, the credit that he deserves for changing the world, and the life that the Starks Howard Stark in particular, deprived of him. It's not just that Anton and Ivan wound up where they did. It's that someone else wound up living the life that in their minds, they should have shared it. That should be you, Anton tells his son as he watches Tony's press conference. Anton can't give Ivan the money or the resources or access that Howard of Tony, but he can pass down a different type of currency. Information, his work. All I can give you is my knowledge, he says as he lays dying, and that knowledge is a mighty inheritance, a powerful source of influence in its own right, and a dangerous one when paired with, you know, the lust for revenge and general resentment that has been passed down from father to son. As Ivan studies the blueprints for the arc reactor that we, along with Tony, learn in this film, Howard did not invent whole cloth by himself. He applies them in a parallel fashion to Tony's Mark I suit construction from the first Iron Man film. The magazine headlines papered up all around the room as Ivan works established Tony's stature in our locker room fodder for Ivan. Motivation for the man living in his shadow. The mirror sequence for Whiplash's first suit of armor creation isn't just intended to highlight the similarities between Tony and Ivan, these two uh, sons of distant fathers who, you know, both brilliant. It's meant to show us that all the things they have in common were not enough to counteract the difference in circumstance, the opportunity afforded or deprived by those 
in power. From that opening sequence and Ivan's cry of misery over his father's deathbed, he took about 30 seconds to really scream out in pain and then immediately got to work on the suit. We jump six months into the future. Tony's using Iron Man as a very pricey pyrotechnic at the Stark Expo in Flushing. There is value in reminding his competitors and the world at large of what he's built. And there's, of course, for us as viewers, always just this visceral thrill associated with seeing Tony stunting, seeing him having fun like this. But there is something instantly anxiety-inducing about seeing Tony showing off at this moment in this fashion when we know that Ivan is out there working toward Tony's destruction. I'm not saying the world is enjoying its longest period of uninterrupted peace in years because of me, Tony says. I'm not saying that from the ashes of captivity never has a greater phoenix metaphor been personified in human history. This is unbelievable, unbelievable Uh, work from Tony. Oh my God. I'm not saying that Uncle Sam could kick back in a lawn chair sipping on a nice tea because I haven't come across anyone who's man enough to go toe-to-toe with me on my best day. And he's shouting this to an adoring crowd. They are soaking up every word of it, encouraging him fully. But of course, he is saying exactly that proudly, both there to the crowd and then to Congress in an official capacity. It's about legacy, he tells the Expo crowd. It's about what we choose to leave behind for future generations. Now, Tony will come to mean that purely and so fiercely that he will snap his fingers to thwart Thanos. Mm -hmm. And he will mean it many, 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 many times along the way and along the path to that moment. But that eventual clarity of intention at this point here is almost completely obscured by his showmanship. You know, Tony Stark may be a superhero, but he's not always a grown-up. No, not at all. But to be fair to him, a little escapism, it might be necessary for Tony right now because he is dealing with a lot of shit, as his father's words play in the background, trumpeting the promise of the future and also clues that his son will soon unearth. Tony is backstage checking his blood toxicity levels. The palladium that is keeping him alive is poisoning him, or as Jarvis will shortly put it, unfortunately, the device that's keeping you alive is also killing you. Thank you, Jarvis. Tough stuff. Thank you, Jarvis. Thank you so much. It is more soothing when you hear it in a British accent, though. I totally agreed. Another thing that's like slightly muddled about this film is so what he has in his chest is a magnet that keeps the shrapnel from going into his heart. Right. And it needs to be basically atomic power level energy palladium that does that. Like that's another that's that's the other thing. They're never quite clear about like exactly how it's keeping him alive. Oh, I thought you were actually going to say something else. That's also a great point. I thought you were going to say the whole battery origin with my dude and rightful winner of episode one, Doc Yinsen. Yes. Push the shrapnel <laughs> away, right? Push the shrapnel away from the heart because moving toward the heart, that's the danger zone. The palladium's already in there. The origin of the toxicity, like the danger is when the poison in your blood reaches your heart. It's starting there with Tony. Like he right. dies when it gets to his pinky. I, I don't I don't get that. I mean, I know that it's, he's working toward a level of toxicity in his blood that is a, a saturation he can't handle, but... I don't know, unless it's going towards his brainstem. That just is literally happening in reverse from the way that would be threatening his body. I I should say also, to be fair to the movie, 
it is equally fuzzy in the comics about they never really go into the nuts and bolts of it other than to say Tony's got to keep the chess piece on or he dies in a lot of those, you know, uh, late 60s, 70s, 80s up to the 90s comics. It's like he's just got to wear it or he's going to drop dead. They don't really go into the how exactly he would drop dead or why if he took it off. Anyway, (laughs) this is a fitting embodiment of the delicate balancing act that Tony and so many others in the superhero game will have to manage. This has always been true for Tony. He became Iron Man because one of his own weapons sent shrapnel into his chest, aimed at his heart. He's an embodiment of contradictions and ironies at once a source of aspiration and a cautionary tale. And right on cue, he has served a subpoena from Kate Mara, who is in this movie for 45 seconds to deliver Tony Stark a subpoena. Amazing. <laughs> As is Olivia Munn. I know. The whole thing is a joke to Tony. Senator Stern is a joke to him. Mm-hmm. Anybody who would deem to question him who is not on his intellectual level, and to be fair to him, very few people are, right. Tony considers basically a joke. And by the way, Senator Stern, as we mentioned off the top, a member of Hydra, as we will learn in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Justin Hammer is a total joke to him. Complete joke. Let the record reflect that I observed Mr. Hammer entering the chamber, and I'm wondering if and when any actual expert will also be in attendance, he says, as as Hammer is introduced by Stern. The idea that rivals at home or abroad could mimic his tech is a joke to him. He considers it a farce. There's no way they could make the leaps that he has made. Interestingly, The threat of enemies using or manipulating his inventions for ill is a persistent worry for Tony in some of his signature comic arcs. Uh, Demon in a Bottle to Armor Wars, The Five Nightmares. That is a thing that Tony is consistently and quite fairly and rightly worried about because I got to say his tech keeps getting into the wrong hands. Tony is proud of what he's built, but hyper aware of what introducing that potential into the world might mean. Movie Tony is, at this point in his arc, obstinate, refusing to acknowledge that his suit is a weapon it is, let alone others could seek to replicate steel or iterate upon it. But of course, pride comes before the fall. I am Iron Man, Tony tells Stern. The suit and I are one. Now, this is a different sort of stubbornness, but it's it's of a piece, ultimately. Tony doesn't think that anyone else is on the verge of matching his tech because he believes himself superior. Tony doesn't want to work with the U.S. government because he believes himself superior. So he is obviously right, of course, we should say, to mistrust Senator Stern and the government. But we can separate the fact that he is right in that moment from what it reveals about Tony's unilateral instincts more broadly and how central they are to his arc. Building a real legacy, as Tony will learn in time, means letting other people help you and learning how to help them. We will see it with Tony and Harley in the mechanic workshop sequence in Iron Man 3. We will see that with Rhodes, of course, later in the film. We will see it with Captain America and the Avengers across the MCU. We will see it in the relationship, most touchingly, ultimately, that Tony forges with Peter Parker and the lessons that he will work to impart. And we will see it, of course, with Pepper and their child, their daughter, and Tony's own father's memory. Not even Tony Stark, not even Iron Man can do it alone. He shouldn't try. But 
it's difficult to latch onto those bonds when your rivals try to deploy them against you tactically, as Hammer does when he starts talking about Howard Stark at the hearing as a, quote, father to us all and to the military-industrial age. Hammer is a, a really fascinating foil for Tony. He's the guy behind the guy, the benefactor floating the masked soldiers who challenge Iron Man consistently in the theater of war. And that's true in the comics as well. He wants Tony's turf. He wants Tony's riches. He wants Tony's reach. But he wants to attain it from a remove. He wants someone else to go get it for him. Hammer and Whiplash are not ultimately unified in their intention, as we will see over the course of this film. And Hammer's inability to fully understand or thwart that in any way is part of what prevents him from being a real equal to Tony, ultimately. But they represent both sides of Tony's persona, that dual persona that weighs on him so heavily in Demon in a Bottle. Hammer's the industry. He's the entrepreneurial potential, the riches, that traditional variety of influence. Venko, Whiplash, is the man with the actual know-how, the man with the ability to put that know-how to use in battle. He's in the suit. He has skin in the game. Hammer doesn't, but actually, ultimately, that's what makes him more dangerous because he can say things like this without fear. Anthony Stark has created a sword with untold possibilities, and yet he insists it's a shield. He's right, of course. Tony's good intention does not fundamentally alter what the Iron Man suit is or what it can do. This will continue to be the case for Tony. He made Ultron to protect the world, but the desire wasn't stronger than Ultron's actual will. On and on the list will go. Fortunately for Tony here, Hammer is just absolutely outclassed. Yeah. (laughs) Not even in the same intellectual area code. His own videotape shortcomings undermining his propaganda campaign. Tony just absolutely takes off from the free throw line and two-hand dunks on him with absolute ease. (laughs) Rhodes' testimony is a richer text, both because he's Tony's actual friend and it's though they would not perhaps want to put it this way, eventual sidekick. Sorry, pal. Sorry, Iron pal. Man doesn't have a sidekick. <laughs> and because he's connected to a part of Tony's life that spawned this new outlook. Remember, right. Tony's origin story hinged in part on moral awakening and understanding that his company had unleashed horrors and that he had some responsibility to deal with that. The chain of command and structure that Rhodes touts is specifically the thing that Tony wants to avoid. There will never be safer hands, in Tony's mind, than his own. I'm not a joiner, Tony says, but I'll consider Secretary of Defense if you ask nice. We can amend the hours a little bit. Of course, in the comics, Tony does become Secretary of Defense. Does he ever piss in his suit as Secretary of Defense? No, but he, um, <laughs> in Avengers, in the Avengers Disassembled storyline, there's like a mind trick that is played on him as he's addressing the UN as the secretary of defense. And he uh, basically becomes drunk and it's basically a, like a thing to discredit him. But he, as the secretary of defense looks completely shit faced in front of the entire UN. Tony, Tony, Tony back to our movie, Tony here, how quickly humor gives way to hubris for Anthony Stark. I'm your nuclear deterrent. Tony says, stern and everyone who's listening. It's working. We're safe. America is secure. You want my property? You can't have it, but I did you a big favor. I successfully privatized world peace. 
and the assembled clap. They cheer. Tony's not a government figure. He is a celebrity, a superstar, completely and totally revered. And sometimes reverence can obscure purpose. I will serve this great nation and the pleasure of myself, Tony declares as he exits (laughs) the chambers. And if there's one thing I've proven, it's that you can count on me to pleasure myself. Great stuff. Great stuff from Tony. (laughs) I love that. That's amazing. Unfortunately, as Tony is joking about jerking off, Vanko is fine-tuning his weaponry. Weaponry that he is testing. Another thing he and Tony share in common, just destroying their own homes during the course of QCing their works here. But anyway, Tony's pad, meanwhile, is man cave mecca. Oh my gosh, Iron Man yes. 2 here. All palladium abating smoothies. Dummy, you're doing a great job over there at the smoothie bar, buddy, and don't let Tony tell you otherwise. <laughs> There's this, the interactive holotech is everywhere. He's even got an Obama Hope-esque Iron Man poster. Shouts to Shepard Ferry, who I hope uh, got the bag for that one. <laughs> I need you to wear a surgical mask until you're feeling better, Tony tells Pepper <laughs> when she comes down there to challenge him. And she is... Even though he's the one saying that to her, she's the one channeling her inner parent, trying to get Tony to set aside his distractions, focus on the legacy that his company represents. Tony's reply to Pepper's insistence that his company is in disarray. You do it. You run the company. The champagne's ready, Jason. He's been thinking about this for a while. It's you. It's always been you. Now, of course, that line is rife with meaning and applies to all aspects of their relationship. Very sweet. But a fascinating dichotomy is at play here. On the one hand, Tony trusts Pepper in a way that is uncommon and is essential to his growth as a hero, a leader, a human being. But on the other hand, he is losing his grip on his responsibilities. Pepper is right to observe that. And she doesn't know why, because despite Jarvis's encouragement, he hasn't told Pepper that he's dying. He's been trying to figure out the right time. It's hard to find the right time for (laughs) something. Enter, quote, Natalie Rushman, end quote, a.k.a. Natasha Romanoff, a.k.a. the Black Widow. I need your impression. You have a quiet reserve? I don't know. You have an old soul. (laughs) I meant your fingerprint. Right. (laughs) An amazing intro scene, really, mixed with some absolutely, as we mentioned off the top, some heavily (laughs) cringe-inducing, this has aged the worst humor which is a pattern, certainly, for the early Iron Man films. And Natalie is right on time to join the fun in Monaco, where everyone who's anyone has gathered for the race. Anthony, is that you? My least favorite person on Earth, (laughs) Justin Hammer. (laughs) Even Christine Everhart is there, Sam Rockwell's real-life partner, the two together in real life. The proceedings quickly devolve from a dick-measuring contest to life preservation, as Tony's desire to... I don't know, feel something once again as his doom is growing nearer to him, leads him to decide that he will drive in the Circuit de Monaco and uh, apparently bring a lot of other people closer to death and actually die. Several people die in this, by the way, in this scene that (laughs) that ensues. After Vanko, in France with the aid of ID and paperwork procured by a member of the Ten Rings, Mm -hmm. just wanders right down onto the track whips out his arc reactor whips and proceeds to attack. What's everyone doing, by the way? I don't know. 
I get it. He's impersonating a member of maintenance crew. When he starts the attack, when he takes off the coveralls and reveals the armor, no one from security thinks to maybe intervene. I mean, listen, uh, the, the toughest moment for me personally is after he cuts Tony's car in half. Tony goes sailing into the retaining wall. He's flipped upside down. Now Vanko is coming towards him slowly, walking towards him. There's three cars that are coming up on him at like 180 miles an hour, right? They buckle mm-hmm. to avoid him. And there's a huge crash that occurs, I don't know, 30 feet behind Vanko. And he just walks like it's one of the most iconic cool dudes don't look at explosions moments <laughs> in films. Like... He's just very lucky that a bolt or a nut or some part like the tire didn't fly at him and just take him out right there. Whole thing could have been over in two seconds, Vanko. My guy survives multiple Happy Hogan Rolls Royce thrusts directly to his person and is completely unharmed and unfazed. So well, what's an explosion from 30 feet, feet away? I guess the, the only thing that I was, uh, that I've always thought there is like, I guess somehow that suit, the harness that he wears must have some other kind of padding around the abdomen because he should be Hogan comes in and gets him good. Oh, I yeah. mean, gets him real good. Like he should be done anyway. <laughs> Van Gogh moves toward Tony like he's jumping rope, slicing at the asphalt with each crack of his arc reactor whips. You remember that from the trailer? I remember when they released yeah. that. Like, that was like the, just seeing him do that in the trailer and everyone getting so hyped. He has brass balls and as, as we just mentioned, apparently a brass pelvis and brass thighs and uh, some kind of adamantium cup over his dick. <laughs> I mean, the only way, honestly, to uh, to rationalize why Happy repeatedly ramming Vanko into concrete with the Rolls Royce only seems to like barely. He has a little bit of blood coming out of his mouth. That's it. You lose. He shouts to Tony. You lose, Stark. Exuding the same confidence as when uh, Tony visits his cell later where he sits covered in tattoos and glory. Love to see the nail care regime from Ivan Vanko. When does he have the time? Anyway. Oh, my goodness. Even now, Tony is so reluctant to accept that he's really been matched. He's listing all the things Vanko could have done differently, could have done better. Changes he will, in fact, make before challenging Tony again at the expo in the film's climax. That nail care is something like the rich. It's almost like he has like tips, but he doesn't. Remarkable stuff. Can I just say, like, I think that this is against, I'm pretty sure this is against, I don't know what the laws are in Monaco, but this is against procedure, right? That the defendant, the victim in an attack is then like allowed to have a tete-a-tete with his terrorist attacker unguarded. It's Tony Stark, man. That is the thing. It's Tony Stark. I want to talk to him. All right. Pull those strings. I love it. Vanko in that exchange does not play coy doesn't really waste any time telling tony who he is or what he wants now tony's gonna have to piece together more of those specifics on his own which he will but vanko's not shielding his motivation that's the key it's about family for him it's about their roots it's about opportunity and accountability and what he believes he's entitled to now iron man 2 as we noted is often a jovial 
movie full of jokes and innuendo and action and glam. It's it's fun. It's a fun movie. But this sequence brings the dark side of legacy to the fore, the resentment and the bitterness that people so often not only come to experience, but inherit that bitterness that is passed down. You come from a family of thieves and butchers, Vanko says. You want to give us a little Vanko voice work here? You come from a family of thieves and butchers. And now, like all guilty men, you try to rewrite your own history and you forget all the lives the Stark family has destroyed. It's really just yours, though. I mean, there's all there's the there's the countless victims of the Stark weaponry yeah. who are mainly anonymous. But it's like Vanko is mainly uh, talking about himself here. Speaking of thieves, uh, where'd you get this design? My father, Anton Vanko. Well, I never heard of him. My father is the reason you're alive. The reason I'm alive is because you had a shot. You took it. You missed. Did I? If you could make God bleed, the people would cease to believe in him and there will be blood in the water. And the sharks will come. The truth? All I have to do is sit here and watch as the world will consume you. How long do you think that he was working on that? Like, how many drafts did he go through in the prior six months before he landed on that line? I mean, it's pretty good. It's good. (laughs) And it does take a while for... Listen, Vanko, in this sense, turns out to be right because Justin Hammer's about to offer him a job. But Tony whooped your ass in his backup armor. It was like the backup to the backup armor. The light armor. That stuff, that the suitcase armor, not that strong. And he fucking knocked you out, bro. It was nice of Vanko out on the track to just stand there patiently waiting while the armor covered Tony's entire body. But (laughs) again, we'll we'll allow it. Tony, after that very intense speech from Vanko, tries to deflect in classic Tony fashion was sarcasm. Oh, where will you be watching the world consume me from? That's right, a prison cell. I'll send you a bar of soap. Jesus. But it's clear that Vanko got to him, burrowed deep beneath his armor, destabilizing not only Tony's sense of dominance, but his very sense of self. Vanko is right, as we just mentioned. The chum draws the sharks like Senator Stern, who absolutely wastes no time going on Every single cable news network that will have him talking about Tony's recklessness in the press. But while Tony is making, honestly, pretty delicious looking omelets for Pepper, did you make that? I thought that looked (laughs) really good. It it did actually look really good. And confronting (laughs) both the reality that the tech he believed a decade or two away from replication is, in fact, out there right now in the streets. And the revelation that the father he already viewed with, you know... uh, complicated skepticism and a little bit of resentment certainly might not have been as noble or certainly less noble than he already thought. Hammer's lunch table is rising six inches. Is that an ex-wife in your pocket, Mr. Hammer? Or are you just happy to see Ivan? He springs Vanko from prison and brings him to an airline hangar for some salmon carpaccio. But first, a job offer. Hammer doesn't even know at this point how smart and resourceful Vanko really is. And he's gifted enough, ultimately, to dupe Hammer and use his means for his own ends. He simply knows that Vanko did the one thing that he most wants to do. Challenge Tony Stark in plain sight and bloody his lip. Just knock him down a peg. How you stepped up to him in front of God and everybody, that was wow. Hammer's the kind of guy who feels big when he makes others feel small. And Tony's 
the hindrance not only to his business and his ability to win goodwill, but to his ego. He's not the best, most cutting edge weapons designer out there when there's a guy flying around in a billion dollar suit of armor. Legacy hinges not just on achievement, but on the nature of it and the reputation one earns along the way. If I may, Hammer says to Vanko, you go after his legacy. That's what you kill. Tony's death would be almost incidental for Hammer. He needs to undermine Stark's credibility because that's how he'll build up his own. Ivan has only one condition for this new partnership. I want my bird. Not just any bird, by the way. My bird. <laughs> I, I respect it, you know. Pet lovers here at Binge Mode. Yes. Vanko's allegiances to his bird, to his father, to his cause are unflinching. The American public's loyalties, however, waver with every gust of wind. Can Tony protect them anymore? Headline after headline, broadcast after broadcast asked. Did all of them forget exactly what he did in Monaco is basically pepper stance. He is protecting us still. As usual, almost everyone is operating at an extreme even though the truth is somewhere in the middle and requires some nuance to properly see. Tony is working to save people. Tony also cannot control other people or their intentions. That's not how the world works. And what's more, right now, he can barely control himself. Tony is teaching himself about Anton Vanko and in the process about his own father. And Jarvis tells him that Vanko defected in 63, that he was deported only four years later after being accused of espionage. Tony has to alter his perception, even if only gradually. And part of that comes from letting Rhodes get a clear sense of the peril that he's facing. Despite Rhodes' lecture, you said nobody else would possess this technology for 20 years. Well, guess what? Someone had it yesterday. Mm-hmm. Tony lets him see the degrading palladium core to know, in other words, that Tony is not fit. And this is all part of Tony's, in essence, long con of inception here. The ways in which he is beginning to prepare Rhodes to step into that armor. But that's not clear to Rhodey. Not yet. You want to do this whole lone gunslinger act and it's unnecessary, he says. You don't have to do this alone. You know, Tony replies, I wish I could believe that. I really do. But you gotta trust me. Contrary to popular belief, I know exactly what I'm doing. While Tony's biding his time before revealing his plan, Hammer is just rushing in. Sue he tells Vanko during his first very reassuring uh, office tour. I'm enthusiastic. Vanko's assessment of the setup as he hacks into the <laughs> into the computer network that is controlling the suits that Hammer has lined up. Software shit. <laughs> Hilarious. Breaks right through the firewall, rips the head off a test suit. He's not one for subtlety. Then again, neither is Justin Hammer. I want to make Iron Man look like an antique, he tells Vanko. I want to go to that Stark Expo and I want to take a dump in Tony's front yard. Tony's own Palladium Corps is taking a dump on his fucking heart. As he readies for his birthday party, we see how far the poison has spread. It's a subway map across his chest, a checkered spidery black markings reaching out from the arc reactor in his chest. Very reminiscent of the techno-organic virus that Tony is infected with in the comics. The toxicity at a crisp 89%. But like whatever the total may be, if Tony's at 98% toxicity, he only needs that other 1% for libido. (laughs) 
plenty of time to flirt with his employee, Natalie, at the birthday party. Is that dirty enough for you, she asks, and embarrass yourself at uh, your own birthday gathering, which she's about to do. It's deliberately sexually charged, but also kind of tender. I got to say, it's hard to get a read on you. Where are you from? Legal. Great stuff. But then Tony asks what she'd do if this were her last birthday, his super contextually specific spinoff of the last meal on Earth quandary. I'd do whatever I wanted to do with whoever I wanted to do it with. Uh, Tony is in many ways the father of the first three phases of the MCU, trusted leader, protector, icon, architect of the Avengers in many ways. But it isn't always easy for Tony, and that's part of why we're so drawn to him. He's so relatable, so human. He makes mistakes and struggles to process his own doubt and fear. If he took Natalie's words to heart, he'd choose to spend this night quietly with Pepper Potts. Instead, he urinates inside the Iron Man suit (laughs) in front of everybody. It has a filtration system. You could drink that water. Shoots down glassware, uh, luckily not like blinding various people who are at the party. A miracle, honestly. Truly. And then does the Gallagher routine where he starts shooting pieces of fruit as well. And then he winds up getting into a mansion-destroying fight with his good friend James Rhodes wearing the unfinished Mark II model. This is why Demon in a Bottle is the most famous Iron Man comic arc. And this is why Favreau was the right shepherd for the early Iron Man films. They understand that Tony struggles with alcoholism, with depression, with doubt, letting other people in, with reconciling the dual nature of life, with vulnerability, are just as central to his story as the aerial battles and the shiny suits. Tony's legacy will not just be defined by what he does, but by who he is and the choices that he makes. Yes. And in this particular case, those choices lead to Rhodey flying off of the suit. Now, Natalie and Fury, to their credit, are able to quickly deduce that Tony wanted Rhodes to take the suit or he would not have been able to. But despite Tony imploring Rhodes to trust him, his pal doesn't see the truth of that unfolding in real time. He cares about Tony and he wants to help him, of course. But Rhodes is a soldier. What began to unfold in the Senate chamber between them comes to a head here. His affection for Tony, even his trust in Tony, can't completely override the instincts that are telling him to keep all the people who are there safe, keep Mm -hmm. them safe from this tech and the threat that it poses if it falls into the wrong hands. And in this moment, Tony's hands are the wrong hands in Rhodes' mind. With Tony drunk doing those backhand repulsor shots on top of people, the threat to the public good seems very clear. You don't deserve to wear one of these, Rhodes says to him. Shut it down. Now, that is as harsh of an assessment as Rhodes could make to Tony. That suit is Tony's greatest achievement. The product, not only of his money and his brain power, but of his newfound clarity of intention, the breakthrough that he had in his own life. Rhodes is telling Tony that he's not worthy of his own life's work. That is agonizing. Now, of course, one of the conundrums that Rhodes's statement, the Iron Man movies in particular, and so much of superhero storytelling in general brings to the fore is the question of who gets to make a judgment like that. Is it the person with the moral high ground? Is it the person with the bigger stick? You know, our friend Varys would say that power resides where men believe it resides. The quote continues, it's a trick, a shadow on the wall. We love that quote and we return to it often. And in Thrones, the point of that message was 
the line that came next. And a very small man can cast a very large shadow. But in this sequence here with Tony and Rhodes, it's that if the thing casting the shadow on that wall can also knock down that wall, that might be the decider. That's often what Tony and his fellow Avengers, including Rhodes, are fighting against. But it's also what they can slip into and become a part of when they're not careful. The game of mark-on-mark punch-out isn't just an exhibition of Tony spiraling increasingly out of control. He's imparting a lesson. You think you got what it takes to wear the suit? We don't have to do this, Tony. And then the hammer line. You want to be the war machine? Ding, 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 ding. Take your uh-huh. shot. Again, continuing the proud streak <laughs> of MCE movies, introducing the character name via dialogue behind Ironmonger and Abomination. Gotta have it. The ensuing repulsor on repulsor bomb blast foreshadows how Tony and Rhodey will eventually beat Vanko in the climax. It's also symbolically resonant. The power of what Tony has built can be too much for him to contain. Enter Randy's Donuts, folks. And shield for real now in the form of Nick Fury and, oh, what's that? Agent Romanoff, a shield shadow who's been watching Tony because they knew he was sick. Fury's quite clear. Tony's a problem and they need him to be a solution. But for Tony to forge a palladium-free path into the future, he has to reconnect with his past. Progress with the past, his legacy. Fury tells Tony about Howard's vision for the arc reactor, a pathway to technology that could fundamentally alter the way humans thought of energy. Anton Vanko is the other side of that coin, he tells Tony. Much as Ivan and Tony are opposite sides of the legacy coin now, but Tony, Tony's the prodigal son, and Howard, Fury tells him, Always knew Tony would finish the work Howard started. Are you that guy? Hmm? Are you? Fury asks him, because if you are, then you can solve the riddle of your heart. Now, it is no accident that that pep talk comes right on the heels of observing to Tony that raising a kid in a, quote, vodka-fueled rage, as Anton did with Ivan, was no fit environment. It's not just a contrast between the Starks and the Vankos, but an appeal, an appeal to Tony to get his own house in order. And Fury isn't just appealing to Tony's emotions by bringing up his father. He's appealing to Tony's ego, of course. Know your audience. He's almost taunting him. Can you get it done, Wonder Boy? But definitionally, matters that concern Howard concern Tony's sense of worth, of course. He was cold. He was calculating, Tony says. He never told me that he loved me. He never even told me he liked me. So it's a little tough for me to digest when you're telling me (laughs) he said the whole future was riding on me and he's passing it down. I don't get that. This is pretty rough. This is pretty painful. An extraordinary amount of Tony's opportunity in life came from being Howard Stark's son. Now, that does not diminish Tony's own ability, but it is just, it is inarguably true. And yet, he doesn't feel worthy of that mantle because he doesn't feel completely connected to it. He doesn't feel like he had Howard's love and approval. He doesn't even know who Howard really was. He's completely stunned when Fury tells him that Howard was one of the founding members of S.H.I.E.L.D. He didn't know that. And his ensuing house arrest is as much about executing S.H.I.E.L.D.'s homework assignment and solving his Palladium problem as it is about better understanding that, better understanding his own history, because understanding the legacy that he has inherited from his father is going to be the thing that unlocks his ability to then forge his own legacy for the future. Howard's case is full of that history, links to a legacy Tony didn't even know he was positioned to inherit, and links 
to the wider Avengers universe as well. The Arc Reactor blueprints are right there next to Howard's old Captain America comic books. And shortly, of course, Tony will use cap shields to balance out his homemade particle accelerator, a hilarious feint and a nod to the fan euphoria after spotting the shield in the first Iron Man film, though. I gotta say, not as accurate as you would want, but Tony Stark is the genius, not I. Tony plays Howard's tapes, and it's the same message Tony plays the crowd at the expo. Everything is achievable through technology, Howard says. But these are the original tapes that the edited material that he played at the expo comes from. Little Tony pops up behind the display table in one take, starts playing with the map, and Howard gets drunk and goofs around. I'd like to personally show you my ass! (laughs) Tony thumbs through his father's notebook, and it seems clear that he's at once looking at a man he thinks of as a stranger, and then he realizes he's also in, in many ways looking at himself. Just when Tony is about to lose heart in this entire endeavor, Howard appears to speak directly to him. I built this for you, but one day you'll figure this out. And when you do, you will change the world. What is and always will be my greatest creation is you. And it is a really touching moment. That was actually the moment for as messy as this plot line is, this part works. This part really absolutely works. It is touching and it is perspective altering, not only in the way that it proves that Howard loved Tony, but that he, even at that young age, with his son, you know, appeared to be four or five, he believed in him and believed in his brilliance. Maybe he didn't always uh, show it or communicate that. Surely there, again, there were easier ways to say, continue my work, Tony, and here's here's what I've been thinking of than to encode it into the architecture oh of the Stark Expo in Queens, New York. But that doesn't mean that he didn't want to do that. And listen, as, as we can see, like father, like son, both Starks with uh, communication issues. Howard really channeling the Roger Sterling energy there. Yes. <laughs> Continuity across performances. I love that. I love I built this for you in particular. It's just really, really, really sweet. You know, people aren't perfect, but you don't always know what's in their heart. It is inspiring after this sequence to see Tony get right back into that Audi, get onto the PCH, head to visit Pepper, allergy attack inducing strawberries in hand. And Pepper is trying to get the Mark II armor back as Bill O'Reilly is shitting on Virginia Pepper Potts on TV. How dare he? As if we needed any more reasons to be Team Pepper. Got a minute, Tony says. No, Pepper replies. The banter between them in general, obviously superior, but really crackling in this scene, as you noted earlier. If I never got to express, and by the way, this is somewhat revelatory to me, Tony is going on and on, twisting himself (laughs) into knots, and Pepper just cuts him off. If you say I one more time, any really legendary lecture from Pepper to Tony ensues, one that includes Pepper asking Tony if he has any idea what goes into running a company. Tough look for our guy, Tony Stark here. I am trying to do the job that you were meant to do, she says. Now, this is at once supremely pointed and charged and reasonable and a little bit unfair because Tony's job has changed and he has needed to change with it. Part of being a better Iron Man at being a better Tony is delegating. But more than that, 
collaborating, letting other people help him. The problem is that Pepper, rightly, feels that Tony just dumped a giant problem into her lap. He's not actually working in synergy with her. He's just handing off and compartmentalizing these aspects of his life. Even in the peak of his Avengers days, this will be a challenge for Tony. Ultron, which you mentioned earlier, entered the world because of a choice that Tony and Bruce make unilaterally. Tony and Captain America will divide cataclysmically in Civil War but rather than figuring out how to push through their differences together. Tony will initially recede into his family life, his time with Morgan, rather than pushing mm-hmm. through his fear with the group. Let's talk this out together in Endgame. Tony thinks that he knows best, but he doesn't always know how to best go about executing that plan when he thinks that he has it. Sometimes it just feels more natural to try to do it on his own rather than to work with other people. But the nucleus of this scene with Pepper, this exchange with Pepper, is the reminder that even when Tony's reflexes carry him in that direction, it's not always what's really in his soul. It's not what he wants. He wants to share his life with her. He just doesn't know how. I lost both the kids in the divorce, he quips. (laughs) about Natalie and and Happy when they enter the office as well. Though the exchange that you already cited earlier might be even funnier. This is maybe the the funniest bit of the movie. I thought you two didn't get along. No, that's not so. Oh, it's just me you don't care for. (laughs) (laughs) But listen, this visit was not all for naught because at least Tony spotted the key to the future is here plaque on the Expo map. And at least the large-scale model of the Exmo map is foldable in just the right way that it fits in his Audi convertible. The ensuing new element discovery sequence, which we will discuss more later today in the 6, isn't the MCU's most successful bit of exposition, but hey, Howard knew that nothing about the Expo's core structure would change over literal decades? He must have put it in the lease that nothing could be touched, I guess. And Tony knew to remove the Belgian waffles. Get rid of the Belgian waffle stands. Get rid of the footpaths. You don't need those. And that, I guess, is good enough for us. It's like an American pickle after uh, Seth Rogen's character awakens from the uh, pickle vat. And they do a scene where uh, (laughs) he's at a press conference with his doctor. Doctor, explain how I could survive 100 years in a pickle vat. And everyone accepted this science and (laughs) nodded that it made sense. (laughs) (laughs) What does Jarvis have to say about what Tony's created using the blueprints encoded into the Stark Expo layout? It's a viable replacement for Palladium. Time to build an at-home particle accelerator, friends. Always fun to see Tony in the lab. This is some of my, you know, this is really integral to Iron Man, Tony Stark as as a character is. You always know that he's turned the corner of some real dark chapter in his life. When he's back in the lab, that's really where he's at most at home, really more at home even than in the suit. And it's certainly always fun to see Tony, you know, alive and not being slowly poisoned (laughs) to death. Uh, The new element, which seems to hit like very pure cocaine, also tastes (laughs) like coconut. (laughs) I mean, when he puts it in, he's like, (laughs) I mean, it looks for a second like he's turning into Dr. Manhattan. (laughs) It really does. But it packs the same punch as the strongest pina colada. Mm. But guess what? The reactor has accepted the core. There we go. We're set. Was we're it, going we just kind of fly, I guess we were just kind of flying by the seat of our pants, and, you know, hoping that the reactor 
would accept the court. But listen, Tony Stark is, again, he's the genius and I am not. <laughs> do you like coconut? I do like coconut. I like coconut uh, water and Me I like too. coconut itself. And I like dried coconut. Coconut cake, delicious. Coconut cake is great. I don't love opening coconuts, but coconut is good. I always think about this when watching Survivor. It's like really rough if you don't like coconut and you're out there. Let's just take a second to shout out Ozzy, the most natural coconut retriever that we've ever seen, I think, on the islands. Just absolutely ran up that tree like a monkey, kicked the coconuts down, and then opened them with ease. <sighs> Shouts to Ozzy. Ivan Vanko has a little bit of that Ozzy in him. He's an innovator, you know, and he has some yes. new tech, too, just like Tony. He's been developing it under Justin Hammer's nose because Hammer has lost himself, if he ever had himself, completely in the euphoria of seeing Rhodes' Mark II armor. The promise of Ivan being able to develop tech that would rival that armor, but he also now has the armor if that falls through, has not really been listening to the substance of the things that Ivan had been telling him. Such as, people make problem. Trust me, drone better. <laughs> Trust me, drone better. Or how about this? Hey, man, don't get too attached to things. Learn to let go. You know, it's like a bit of a pattern here. If Hammer had been paying attention to anything that Ivan was saying, but alas. By the time Hammer calls him, from the golf course, asking to swing by with Senator Stern for a demo, Venko's I can make salute is just a stall tactic to mask his pretty fully fleshed out agenda. He has constructed yes. new armor, new whips, planning to deploy the drones as his army. Hammer was so busy flexing, so busy with the ex-wife speechifying during his oh weapon sale pitch to Rhodes. <laughs> <gasps> that he failed to identify that the man he thinks he's been using to further his own agenda has really been using him the entire time, using him for safe yep. harbor, using him for resources, using him for an on-ramp directly to attacking Tony. Whiplash may have been one of Hammer's hired hands in the comics too, but this version of Whiplash, this version of the villain is not interested in working for somebody else. And certainly not for somebody who would hurt his poor bird my bird i i that 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 upsets me when they put the bird in the bag i don't like that yeah why is that Terrible. why is that happening why Terrible. are we doing that what's up with that took his boots took his pillow i assume he took the boots because he just wanted to admire the pedicure but the, putting the bird in the in the pillowcase is unacceptable the, 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 the sack terrible also like the other thing is justin you leave him alone with i don't like a billion dollars worth of tech and free reign on the computer terminal to reprogram these machines, and then you come back and you're pissed that stuff's not going down the way you want. Why don't you hang out here and get off the course? Yeah. Just have someone be here with him. It's fine. He left two guys, and it'll be fine. There won't be any. They don't problems. know shit. They were just there to make sure you didn't leave. <laughs> They're not programmers. Oh my god! And 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 despite all that, Hammer blesses poor sweet soul still thinks he really thinks that he's won. He really does. As he's taking away those shoes and those pillows, he's flexing. He thinks he's in complete control and command. He thinks he's gotten Ivan back under his thumb. He has no sense of what Ivan's ultimate design is. I'm going to go to the expo, he says. And he's so joyful 
that he has Tony's actual invention, Tony's tech in his hands, that he no longer needs to rely on Ivan because things have derailed. He ends his speech with, maybe I'll even get laid. I mean, this guy is just not seeing the board clearly at all. No, not at all. Well, no sooner has Hammer begun to scroll through the tinder of his mind than Vanko has rescued his boat, eliminated Hammer's goons. We know, have no idea how. He's just done it. And called Tony to thank him for the casual double cycle suggestion. How did he crack Shield's block on Tony's communications? Who cares? Good advice. <laughs> Uh-oh. Now the true history of the Stark name will be written. What your father did to my family over 40 years, I will do to you in 40 minutes. And Tony deduces Ivan's target must be the expo, just as Ivan wished him to. Hammer's presentation in front of a logo that has Asgardian Royal Palace vibes Mm -hmm. debuts the Hammer drones. Army! Navy! Air Force! The Marines! And then the peace... Mm -hmm. The Resistance, Captain Rhodey Rhodes, decked out in the variable threat response battle suit, which we, of course, will call War Machine. The mm. gall of Justin Hammer proudly trumpeting someone else's achievement as his own. I'm not even sure he installed the guns. Like, he just came with, like, a suitcase full of guns, <laughs> and then they did all the work. He did nothing. He did practically nothing. This guy's ridiculous. He has no shame. Just naked ambition, and that leaves him and everyone close to him vulnerable. Stupidity is not much of a shield, as we see when Vanko takes over Rhodes' suit systems and the drones and deploys them against Tony and indiscriminately against everyone else who happens to be at the expo. It takes Hammer approximately 14 seconds to fold under Pepper and Agent Romanoff's wrath. Uh, No, uh, just I got this. uh, Stay away from this stuff. It's like, what? Come on. And ultimately, taking down Vanko is, to quote Ryan George's recurring pitch meetings here, quote, super easy, barely Barely an inconvenience. inconvenience. Black Widow, with a little help and a lot of creeping from Happy, annihilate Hammersman. Happy going full barbarian mode and biting off a dude's ear. That was a lot. Bro. I mean, Happy Hogan's origin, he was a boxer, so a little Mike Tyson nod there. You know? Yes, absolutely. But I got to tell you, Fight took way too long, and then <laughs> it took you having to bite a guy's ear off to win. Meanwhile, Nat is running through a dozen other dudes. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Tony and Rhodes, of course, figure out how to work together to defeat Vanko, running back the repulsor high five. Put up your hand if you're taking out the drones. No thanks to uh, the hammeroid's ex-wife. That reveal is so funny. Really? Stand good. back. I'm going to hit him with the ex-wife. Boink. Hammer tech. <laughs> Tony even calls Rhodes partner. Tony may not have earned Agent Romanoff's sign off to access that tempting, quote, Avengers initiative folder that, quote, Mr. Stark displays compulsive behavior. In my own defense, that was last week. <laughs> but Tony is still beginning to usher in a new legacy at film's end, one that centers on a new life with Pepper and one that embraces the idea of teamwork and one of shared avenging. Yes! Jason, I think you got what it takes to wear that suit. We don't have to do this, Mal! You want to be the war machine? Take your shot. Gather the masters of the mystic arts. 
head to the sanctum sanctorum of your choosing and teach us everything we need to know about James Rhodes and War Machine, plus a little more Iron Man tech. James Rhodes, War Machine, and some other Iron Man tech. Here's an interesting comic book fact. James Rhodes first cut his teeth in armor as Iron Man in the classic red and gold armor. And War Machine's armor was first worn by Tony Stark. Writer Denny O'Neill switched teams from DC Comics, where he penned some legendary Batman and Green Arrow stories to Marvel Comics in 1980. O'Neill wrote Iron Man from 1982 to 1986, and he contributed significantly uh, to the character's lore. Obadiah Stane in the Ironmonger armor, Tony, made their debuts. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Stark's Silver Centurion armor, the most high-tech armor to date, was introduced, and Tony Stark, under intense pressure, slumped back into alcohol abuse, spurring his friend and personal pilot James Rhodes to don the armor. Fun fact, artist Bob Layton, who is the penciler on these issues, in an interview I was uh, reading while doing research for this, was asked, hey, what'd you think of Denny O'Neill returning to the demon in the bottle kind of themes? And he's like, I never read it, but I heard it went on too long. Oh, boy. Okay. Whoa. Okay. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) It all went down in Iron Man 169 and 170. Jonathan Dark, a.k.a. Magma, supervillain, so minor, he does not appear in the 1982 version of the official handbook to the Marvel Universe, attacks Stark International's Long Island HQ using his brand new four-legged battle vehicle. Kind of looks like a a War of the Worlds kind of uh, spider vehicle. Stark is in absolutely no shape to meet the challenge. He has been uh, on a bender for some amount of time. He begins the issue by drunkenly flying through all the billboards for uh, for alcohol products in Times Square as crowds look on and Daredevil is like, he must know what he's doing. He's an Avenger. Then he drives, then he flies to his apartment and passes out. When he, when he wakes, still obviously drunk, he sees a news report uh, showing himself smashing all these billboards, and he's like, that's fake. I don't believe that that happened. This is where Tony Stark is in Iron Man 169. Stark International, meanwhile, is faltering. The company recently defaulted on a major contract and is mired in debts. Rumors on Wall Street say somebody is angling to buy up Stark International's debts and take control of the company. Tony knows that person. Is Obadiah's dead? Tony! (laughs) (laughs) Stark, now, who can barely walk to say nothing of fly, is shaken when he confronts Magma in the supervillain's vehicle. The power of it is shocking to him. And in a move that must have been quite surprising at the time, Stark turns and runs back to Stark International's fusion lab where he plans to overcharge his batteries to give him the juice he needs to defeat Magma. What happens? As soon as uh, Tony attempts to do that, he blows the power supply of Stark International and plunges the facility into darkness. Meanwhile, Magma is running rampant outside, and Tony, desperate now, finally reveals to his good friend James Rhodey Rhodes that he is indeed Iron Man. Yes, that's right. James Rhodes 
was surprised by this. Unbelievable. More on why that is absolutely crazy in a little bit. He then picks up a bottle of scotch, polishes it off, and passes out in his armor as James Rhodes looks on. In desperation, Rhodes undresses Tony, takes the armor off, puts it on himself. He says, as soon as I lock this helmet in place, I'll be Iron Man. Then what? I've watched Tony use this suit a million times, but I have no idea how it works. He gives it his best shot, though, and he flies down to face magma. And he does quite well, actually, considering he's uh, using this thing for the first time. But he's unable to take down magma's vehicle. In the end, it's one of Stane's uh, chessman minions. He has these armored up bodyguards that are uh, chess piece themed. So this is the knight who takes out the walker. Stane wants Stark destroyed, but since he's like on the cusp of acquiring the company, he doesn't want any of the property destroyed. He wants that intact. So he had to stop Magma there. Magma, who has a robust power suit of his own, then confronts the still drunk Tony in his office. Tony is so absolutely shellacked that he can't remember the access codes to his backup suits. He's been sitting there trying to punch in codes on his knees in his tidy whities He can't get into his suits. Rhodey flies to the rescue, takes down Magma. Tony tells Rhodey, listen, keep wearing it. I'm a mess right now. You keep wearing it. And it's partially because he recognizes, actually Rhodes will do a great job with this, but it's not necessarily because he thinks he needs to get his life in order. It's so he can continue drinking. So bad times for Tony right here. And this begins James Rhodes's run as Shellhead. He was the ideal choice. Rhodes's origin story, a retcon of Tony's, appears in 1981's Iron Man 144. This takes us back to when he hears this clanking and a metal figure wearing a trench coat and a fedora. <laughs> Dope fit. <laughs> comes clanking out of the trees. It is Tony, fresh from his escape, wearing the Model 1, the gray bucket Model 1 armor. The two fight off a Viet Cong patrol that also stumbles across them, and they set off on foot after Rhodes recharges Tony from the battery of his helicopter. They come across an enemy base, fight their way through it to another helicopter. With Rhodes at the helm, they take off, make it back to friendly lines. After this whole affair, Iron Man disappears. Who appears but Iron Man's quote-unquote boss, Tony Stark, who introduces himself to James Rhodes and says, hey, when you're done with the Marines, why don't you come work for me? Now I ask you, how is it possible that James Rhodes does not realize that Tony Stark is Iron Man? Where has Tony been? The first Iron Man armor didn't have the voice box stuff. It didn't have anything. It's just Tony's voice coming out of this metal helmet. (laughs) And then then Iron Man leaves and Tony Stark appears and is like, yeah, thanks for saving my bodyguard. That was good of you. Come work for me. From there, Rhodes becomes Tony's personal pilot and basically his best friend, and the rest is history. Now, Rhodey's run as Iron Man lasted 30 issues from Iron Man 169 to 199. During that time, it wasn't always easy. Remember, recall in the Iron Man 1 sanctum, we talked about the brainwave tech that allowed Tony to control his armor. Well, it wasn't calibrated for Rhodey, still calibrated for Tony. So James started to have these really, really bad headaches. And then even when the armor was properly synced, it continued. And this led to increasingly unhinged and delusional behavior by Rhodes. At one point, he was 
gripped by the idea that Tony hated him for wearing the armor and was plotting against him to get it back. But eventually, with the help of uh, Shaman, a character who is a member of the Canadian super team Alpha Flight, Rhodes manages to find his way back to stability. He and Tony fight side by side for a few issues with Tony in the old gray armor, Rhodes in the gold and red armor. Tony then eventually reclaims the title of Iron Man in 1985's Super Size Iron Man 200, which features the debut of the cutting-edge Silver Centurion armor and Tony's final and tragic showdown with Obadiah Stane. Tony! (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, I love it so much. Also, shout out to Steve for just breaking into a spontaneous Zoom dance when you said Alpha Flight. That one's great, man. (laughs) Underrated. The War Machine armor makes its debut seven years later in 1992's Iron Man 281. In this issue, Tony is near death. He's suffering the effects of the techno-organic virus. And he's also severely weakened from using his really physically and psychologically demanding space armor during the Galactic Storm crossover event that involved most of the Avengers. Quote, I have to face the fact that I'm dying he tells Rhodey in Iron Man 280. I've been betrayed by science, by technology. Meanwhile, Stark's foes, including Hydra, Roxxon, Maraboshi International, the Trinational Commission, all led by Justin Hammer, are circling, preparing to dismember Stark International as soon as he is out of the way. Meanwhile, the Master of Silence, armored up assassins from Japan, are hunting Tony in revenge for Stark International's role in a deadly nuclear reactor accident. Apparently, uh, Stark International supplied parts to a construction company who built a nuclear reactor and the parts were faulty. Tony, what is happening with your company? Anyway, Tony controlling his suit remotely from his deathbed. That's commitment. It is commitment. (laughs) With the help of some timely holograms, manages to fight off the assassins. Using a neurobooster, which is this little gadget he attaches to his chest, which amplifies his central nervous system, he's able to overcome the effects of the technovirus. And he heads back to the lab where he puts the finishing touches on a heavily armed suit of black finished metal. The next issue, Iron Man 283, features the words War Machine sprayed over the title Iron Man. Woo, chill. In 284, Tony passes away. Spoiler, he faked his death and had himself placed in cryo sleep in order to pause the effects of the techno-organic virus. Not even Rhodey knows the truth, and mm. when he does find out, he will be fucking pissed. Some Obi-Wan, Anakin, and Clone Wars <laughs> <laughs> precursors there. James Rhodes, at that point, takes up the mantle, becoming War Machine. The intensely aggressive Iron Man Model 11, or War Machine Model 1, variable threat response battle suit, featured a back-mounted laser-targeted minigun on the left shoulder, firing depleted uranium shells, a missile launcher on the right shoulder, a wrist-mounted flamethrower, a wrist-mounted chain gun, a laser sword, tear gas, smoke grenades, mines, various sensor modes for detecting threats, including cloaked enemies, and a heavy polycarbonate finished skin finished in gunmetal black. Weapons and other features were controlled by the heads-up display inside the helmet, which came with an upgraded voice module for basically sounding like a bigger, badder badass. Tony! Okay. (laughs) Let's quickly talk about the briefcase armor, which, in my opinion, is the highlight of Iron Man 2. If you remember from the previous Sanctum, Stark, from his earliest comic appearances, carried his armor in a briefcase, 
The chest piece, of course, which kept him alive, was worn at all times during those early days. The rest of the armor, uh, in its depolarized, demagnetized state, could be folded like cloth and carried in the case. By the 80s, the briefcase had been seriously upgraded. Under the luxurious matched green leather, the case was heavily armored, rendering it bullet and explosion proof. Demagnetized metal may be foldable, but we're talking heavy stuff here, folks. According to the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, Tony's golden red armor weighed 215 pounds, Mm -hmm. so heavy. Along with an onboard computer and communication system, Stark included an anti-gravity field generated from these two little pods so the case could be carried like a normal briefcase. It felt just the same weight as a normal briefcase. A thumbprint scanner ensured that only Stark could open the case, and for extra security, he would occasionally handcuff the case to his wrist. Mm -hmm. Tony would continue to use the briefcase up until the 2005-2006 Extremis storyline, which made the armor essentially part of Tony's body, made of nanoparticles that stored itself in Tony's bones. This storyline vastly upgraded Tony's power level and negated the use for a briefcase. Bye-bye, touch ID. Bye-bye. Mal, the after podcast starts in 15 minutes. But that gives us plenty of time for some nuggets. So let's collect six of our favorite insights and observations from this film, like so many Infinity Stones. Number one, Crimson Dynamo. As we noted earlier, Ivan Vanko was not originally Whiplash in the comics. Papa Vanko, however, has a long canonical history. Before he died in his bed in the MCU, consumed by resentment over what the Starks had robbed him of, Anton Vanko was one of the comics characters who assumed the alias Crimson Dynamo. First introduced in 1963's Tales of Suspense number 46, Anton Vanko was actually a lot like Tony Stark. He was not born with powers. He did not attain his powers cosmically. No radioactive spiders bit him, but he was a genius. And like Tony, he put that genius to work by crafting a high-powered, in his case, electronic field-manipulating armor to match that brilliance. And in fact, he built that armor because of Tony's armor as part of the Soviet Union's efforts to disrupt America's display of might. The tale from there is... Quite something. It involves shifting allegiances, espionage, even a little dose of Black Widow. And other wearers of the armor as well, because Venko is not the only Crimson Dynamo to grace Marvel's pages. Perhaps even more notably than that, though. He's also not the only character named Anton Venko to grace Marvel's pages. And Anton Venko entered the comics around Iron Man 2's release, but not encased in that Crimson Dynamo red-painted alloy. Rather as the new whiplash tough beat here for Ivan. Number two, new element. We spoke earlier about how little sense the sequence makes in which Tony discovers and creates the new element, and it turns out it caused some confusion inside of the Marvel Universe as well. In the Iron Man 2 novelization, the element that Tony creates is given the name vibranium, which, of course, (laughs) like, duh, caused some serious canonical timeline issues when, in Captain America the First Avenger, which took place decades before Iron Man 2, Steve Rogers receives a vibranium shield, meaning Tony could not have invented, per his father's guidance, an element that existed years prior. This also absolutely destroys decades of Marvel Comics canon. And of course, vibranium has long existed in Marvel Comics as a naturally occurring, albeit likely extraterrestrial in nature, element mined in Wakanda, 
and the Antarctic, the Antarctic variety is called anti-metal. Watch out for the dinosaurs up there. So Tony's new element is not vibranium, but he did still need a name for it. And so was born a delightful nugget that really only Tony could generate. In Marvel, the Avengers prelude, Fury's Big Week, fun six-issue comic that's like each story is like five pages long. Tony attempted to secure a patent for his creation under the name Badassium. <laughs> Badassium. But was thwarted by the law of the land. Just incredible stuff from Tony. Yeah. I love it. Number three, the Tesseract's influence. Okay, new element. You're talking about new element. Tony's new element inspiration obviously began to take root within him while he was watching Howard's touching video message, flipping through his father's notebook. Those notebook pages contain, in hindsight, a monumental reveal, sketches of the Tesseract. Since the Tesseract contains the Space Stone, this is technically, technically the first glimpse of an Infinity Stone in the MCU. I love it. That honor is typically bestowed upon the Thor Stinger when we see the actual Tesseract in all of its shining glory rather than just an ink and paper rendition. But again, if we're, if we're being technical here. Now, Howard, of course, found the Tesseract at the bottom of the sea after Captain America's sacrifice events that we'll see unfold in Captain America, the first Avenger, and talk about much more in that podcast. And the pitch that he makes to Tony in this video message here in Iron Man 2 come from his efforts to try to harness that energy, the energy of the Tesseract specifically. Howard helped to create not only S.H.I.E.L.D., which we hear Nick Fury mention to Tony in this film, of course, but also Project Pegasus, a fascinating bit of Marvel canon. Jason loves to chat about Project Pegasus. I do. That we will be discussing more over the course of the pod, including, of course, in our eventual Captain Marvel episode. And an endeavor in which Howard and co. worked to study this object, to study the Tesseract, study the energy that it generated. And of course, what do we know about that energy and that pursuit? Our guy Nick Fury is still working to deploy that energy for S.H.I.E.L.D.'s misguided ends in the Avengers. Nick, Nick, Nick. <laughs> now, Pegasus is part of another cross-MCU connection in Iron Man 2 as well, because in this film, Tony tells Jarvis, quote, get me everything from projects Pegasus, Exodus, and Goliath. Now, we just outlined what Pegasus is. In Ant-Man and the Wasp, Bill Foster will tell Scott, back in the day, I was Hank's partner on a project called Goliath, which we will learn is a Pym particle experimentation around mass. Goliath is actually a double Marvel Easter egg, though, because it's not only a tease for that future Marvel reveal, but for the comics superhero alias that Foster, Hank Pym, and others assume over time. So what about Exodus? Could it perhaps refer to the comic book character, the immensely powerful mutant and villain in the X-Men stories? Could it perhaps refer to the Fantastic Four comics arc that bears the name? Either possibility is very exciting because of the prospect, as we have discussed so often, and will continue to do so for bringing X-Men and Fantastic Four into the fold. Yes. Number four, the shield map. Speaking of shield adjacent clues in Iron Man 2 that point to the wider universe, yeah. let's talk about the map visible in the Fury Tony textbook narcissist scene. The map pinpoints several key locations, among them Malibu, where Tony's house and where his Iron Man lab and various uh, suits of armor are. New Mexico, the landing spot of Mjolnir, 
Thor's hammer, which we hear Coulson hint at earlier in the film and see him discover in person in the IM-2 stinger, the Arctic, where Cap went into the ice, and where Howard found the Tesseract in the ocean, Norway, where Odin battled the Frost Giants, and where Johann Schmidt discovered the Tesseract, New York City, where Iron Man and War Machine battled Whiplash, and where Hulk battled Abomination, though given the Hulk Culver University footage is also playing in the room during the scene, the exact timeline overlap is a little unclear. And of course, Wakanda, where we'll discover rich vibranium stores, the heart-shaped herb, and more wonders. There's also an oceanic marking that Marvel fans assume points to Atlantis, home to Namor, the Submariner, not owned, Mm -hmm. film distribution-wise, by the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Those IP rights issues. Ding, 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 ding. What if it transpired that this was just like a big map of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s favorite lunch spots. It's like they just want to hit up Nobu in Malibu. Oh my God. You know? Marking the rotation. It's possible. No, You never know. It'd be so cool for them to get Submariner. And honestly, like no one, there's never even been a hint of like, let's make a Submariner movie. He's such a cool character. They got to bring him in. It's like one of the biggest assholes in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> he truly is just like an absolute dick. But like you get it because he's like a king and everybody and he's like dealing with all these dummies all the time. Like I'm a king. If I take you down to the water, I'm whooping everyone's ass, including the Hulk. You can't fuck with me. Stop it. Got to bring him in. Can't let Aquaman and the deep have all the fun. (laughs) The deep. (laughs) Feel good about your gills, the deep. Number five. Hammer time. We will talk much, 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 much more about Trevor Slattery in our Iron Man 3 podcast. Stay tuned. But he warrants a quick mention here because of the Marvel one-shot centered on his prison time. All Hail the King, the 2014 short film, centers on stealth 10 rings agent Jackson Norris, a.k.a. Scoot, going for a prison interview with the faux Mandarin. But it features a fun surprise for Iron Man 2 fans, a Justin Hammer prison cameo. While the one shot focuses almost in full on Trev soaking up the vibes of his prison celebrity, he is just lapping it up, hamming his way through his interview with Norris, reminiscing about his old CBS pilot, Caged Heat. By the way, this made me think of Nikki Heat shouts to my fellow castle heads out there. Steve, I know you're with me. We do, though, get a few seconds of something else. We get a few seconds with Hammer over the end credits, sitting at the cafeteria table with his prison bow, reminiscing about... Tony! (laughs) Hammer, in classic asshole rich guy fashion, is not actually mad at Tony. He's mad at Pepper because he cannot believe that she beat him. Quote, Then I got to wake up and look at this chick, Hammer says, after seeing Pepper on the cover of Forbes magazine. Pepper Potts stirs up stuff. Look at me, some second-rate jumped-up Amazon secretary, he says, mocking her. And then the quote continues, Tony and I, Tony, Tony's cool. Tony and I, we have an understanding, both brothers in arms, you know? Literally, we were both arms dealers, both good-looking. We both have nice hair. We both have boats. I used to have a boat. Unbelievable stuff here. From Justin Hammer, safe to say that he has not gained any humility or perspective since his Ivan Van Gogh mishap. What does Hammer think of Big Trev, though? You may be wondering. Glad you asked. Quote, look at this guy, Hammer exclaims in the one shot. What's so special about him? I mean, I had an army of robots. What's he got? He's got some dumb accent and his name's Trevor. What is that? 
Number six, cameos. It wouldn't be an Iron Man edition of the six without a list of the film's notable cameos. There is, of course, Stan Lee, who gets a Larry King shout out from Tony at the Expo. Seth Green, also at the Expo for second in the elevator. There are some business world cameos with Larry Ellison of Oracle Corp, Elon Musk, which I forgot about. Oh, <laughs> I was like, well, my God. They have like a full conversation. It's wild. They do. He's like three lines. Adam Goldstein, DJ AM, appears at Tony's party. Tragically, he would pass away from an overdose before the film was released. There's also the fictional cameo of note from Peter Parker himself, continuing the tradition of, if Kevin Feige says it is absolutely canon, Feige via Tom Holland sanctioned the long-running fan theory that the kid wearing the Iron Man helmet and standing up to the drones at the expo is, in fact, a young Peter Parker. I can confirm that as of today, Holland told HuffPost. In 2017, I literally had a conversation with Kevin Feige only 20 minutes ago. Maybe I've just done a big old spoiler, but it's out there now. <laughs> Peter and Tony, a bond that dates back even further than we thought. Wonderful. I love that theory. And I love that Feige's like, yeah, totally. That's right. That's great. I also love done a big old spoiler as a turn of phrase. I plan to adapt that moving forward. Have I done a spoiler? We'll have to change our disclaimers instead of binge mode yeah. contains spoilers. Binge mode might do a big old spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> That's a nice ring to it. Jason. Yes. You know, there's only about 8,011 things that I really need to talk to you about. And one of them is today's winner. Because this season, we are debating the winner of every episode of Binge Mode Marvel. Whosoever holds this hammer, if they be worthy shall possess the power of binge. Today's debate is going to be between Pepper Potts and Howard Stark, a heavyweight classic. But before we dive in, let's quickly refresh everybody on the rules. The first debater will be chosen by coin flip. Mm -hmm. Each contestant will have 60 seconds to make mm -hmm. their case, an opening statement. That is followed by 30 seconds of rebuttal by each contestant. And then finally, the decision will go to you, the audience, in a true test of representative democracy. Don't fail us. Mal, are you <laughs> yeah. ready? Are you going to flip the coin? I'll flip it. Okay. Do you want to call it? I'll go with heads. Correct. You are correct. Wow. You, you choose who goes first. You may go first yourself. Or you may pass that to me. I just want to state for the record that I almost always pick tails, but wow! I just with with an Iron Man film, you know right. the the way that that Tony's helmet just pops right to the the front of my mind. I felt like I had to go with heads, and you know it, it paid off. So I feel like I've already won, no matter what the I, result it's is. Amazing, which is helpful. It's nice. To, it's nice to feel that way. I'm gonna go first. I'm gonna okay. go first. I'm gonna take another sip of coffee, and then I'm gonna go first. Okay. <laughs> oh boy. I need to get my stopwatch going on my end, too, because yeah, I, you know, I got to track myself. You know how I get, Jay, when the clock is going? Am I ready? What I really need is like a Jarvis display inside my yeah. eyeball <laughs> telling me how I'm doing. Steve, can you set that up? Can you get that? <laughs> do we have do we have that tech? Steve, come on. Come on, man. This is Mark three of binge mode Marvel. Where, where's our where's our upgraded tech? OK. Ready, set, and just to be clear, 
because I don't want any of your shenanigans robbing me of a second, Jason. Oh my God. I will be hitting start after I say go. Not as I say go, but right after I say go. <laughs> no, see, now here you are. Here you are. Eking it out extra second out of the process. Every second counts, you know? Okay, all right, all right. <clears throat> Ready, set, go. Okay, what a movie for my gal Virginia Pepper Potts earned that big promotion to CEO. You love to see it. Hooked up with Iron Man on a rooftop. How romantic. You love to see it. Except for you, Rhodey. Please stop peeping. It's weird. Kept her cool in more moments than we have time to recount right now with the 60-second clock. National media questioning her credentials. The government attempting to control her company's IP. Vanko coming at her with his electric whips while she's just sitting in a Rolls Royce, and yet she never faltered, including in the face of Tony lusting after other women. Never fun. <laughs> and, and her absolute dunk fest on Tony in the strawberry scene is one of the highlights of the movie. The crispness of the exchange, the confidence, the wit. It's just masterful as she drags him. I need you. I need you too. That's what I'm trying to, to leave now. He's not the only one she dunks on. She completely dusts hammer, gets him sidelined at the expo. Minus her failure to stay home sick, which I don't condone. She has a flawless run in the film. She's part babysitter, part inspiration. All winner. And that's it. Time. <laughs> Woo! That was good. Oh my now. God. Exhausting. Thanks. All right, Jason, are you ready to argue your case? I am. You count me in and I'll start the clock. I'm going to I'm going to give it three, two, one, go. OK, you know how you are. OK. And then do I wait a couple decades to actually have an impact or? <laughs> Excellent point. I'm going to touch on that. OK. <laughs> three, two, one, go. My winner is Howard Stark. Now, I know what you're, everyone is saying. Oh, here we go. Another rich white man is the winner. Yes. And let me make the case. <laughs> Howard, his best days, his biggest impact happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and has borne fruit in this timeline. He imbued Stark Expo with the knowledge that Tony would need to create the new element. He, and it worked. Somehow nobody touched the architecture until that time, until he needed, that's that's the kind of legend that Howard Stark had. Nobody even wanted to mess with the lemonade stand, lest the ghost of Howard Stark would smite them. Not only that, but he got out before he got canceled. And by got out, I meant he was assassinated by the time. Winter Soldier. Time. <laughs> time. Wow, that was a lot. 30 seconds, not enough to argue against that, that case, but I'll do my best. Ready, set, go. Okay, I obviously have strong feelings about the role that the Howard-Tony relationship plays in Tony's whole arc, of course, but giving Howard the win for Iron Man 2 is like giving Tom a win in a Kate-centric Lost episode because he once buried a time capsule with her. Howard, as you have noted, in this episode of Binge Mode, good sir, relied on an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of luck and circumstance. His faith in Tony is touching, but loving happenstance isn't enough to win. So we might as well give it to the waffle stands at that point, Jason. Or to Johann Schmidt for and giving him Tesseract deck. Yo. You want Red Skull to be your winner? I don't want it. We'll get to that later. Perhaps in the end game pod, we will get to that. 
whether <laughs> Johann Schmidt should ever win anything. It's an unfortunate uh, it's an unfortunate turn of events that, that, really that, that that's arguable. OK, I'm ready to rebut this. OK, I can't wait to hear what you have to say against Pepper Potts, a legend and an icon, but you can try. Three, two, one, go. Uh, Pepper's achievements are, cannot be argued. That said, Tony gives her the mantle of CEO because he doesn't want to do it anymore. He's shunting that responsibility off to the side so that he can wear the Iron Man armor. And by the way, the true mark of a winner in this franchise is who gets the armor. Rhodey Rhodes stole armor, and then Tony was like, that was great. Where's the armor for Pepper Potts? It's not here yet, unfortunately. It's coming. It's not That's here time. yet. It's That's not time. here yet. The armor is coming. The patriarchy is real. <laughs> <laughs> All right, binge heads. We have made our cases, and now Mjolnir is in your hands. Head to all of our social channels and feeds at binge underscore mode on Twitter and Instagram, the binge mode Facebook group. Cast your vote for whether Howard Stark or Pepper Potts is the worthy winner of Iron Man 2. Well, friends, we built this for you. And someday you'll realize that it represents a whole lot more than just people's inventions. It represents our life's work. As we keep telling Steve Alvin, Isaac Lee, and Zach Cram, our indispensable producers and researcher. Remember, if you are looking for our prior seasons, Binge Mode Game of Thrones, Binge Mode Harry Potter, Binge Mode Star Wars, Binge Mode Weekly, Binge Mode whatever you're looking for. Woo! It's available for you to listen to in full for free, exclusively on Spotify. We hope you had as much fun as we did today that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the Quinjet continue to explore the story and that you'll join us again next time for our discussion of Thor. Boy, get your eyebrows ready. Until then, drop your socks, <laughs> grab your Crocs. Oh, none of this, uh, none of this doing anything for you? Okay. Stand back, ladies and gentlemen. Here it is. These are the magnums. These are the big, these are the big boys. Okay. These are the dongs. I call this the tunnel maker. You fire one of these big girthy boys, it will turn the population from, let's say, 100 to something like 125 in nine months. That's right. Depending on how many are, happen to be uh, ovulating at that particular time, you're never going to forget the tunneler. It's capable of busting in the bunker from outside the bunker and then busting again after a very short recovery period and then busting again and then busting yet again and busting so much that people are going to say, how are, how is it still busting? If it was any veinier, it would be uh, one of Hannibal Lecter's medical drawings. <laughs> That's Hammer Tech, baby.